February 2019, I had the amputation. And then 11 weeks later, I climbed at New Zealand National. Welcome to the Training Edge podcast. I hope all of you are doing well. I took a week off last week as this has been 12 weeks straight since this podcast launched. Pretty crazy, so I'm sure you can all understand a break was needed. But on the plus side, that has got me motivated and ready to pump out some pretty awesome conversations. I started this podcast because at the time I wasn't creatively challenged as I wanted to be. And this is something that I hope would inspire others as well as inspire me. For this podcast, I seek individuals to chat with that push themselves as athletes and are always seeking that extra challenge. The hope then is their lessons and methods can motivate and push others to maybe try something similar to their in their own version. If you have been motivated or inspired by episodes so far, please reach out and let me know. Send me a message on Instagram or Facebook by searching for Training Edge Podcast. All right, today's guest is such an individual that does inspire others. She has had quite a lot thrown at her in her life, and I love that she continues to carry herself in a pursuit of being better, but also with an aura of positivity. My guest today is Rachel Maya. Rachel is a paraclimber from New Zealand who chose to have her left leg amputated in 2019. Through all of this, Rachel is a mother of three, and you can tell she has a pretty remarkable bond with her kids. She has goals of becoming world champion, and I believe she will get there with the determination and perspective that she carries in her life. I was honored to be able to spend time chatting with her, and I know you will like this one. Enjoy. All right, Rachel Maya, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Kia ora there. All right, so the topic I wanted to talk to you about is, as an athlete and a person, how to overcome what life throws at you. Um, all athletes have obstacles that life throws at them at one point or another, but it's the athletes that handle those obstacles that, you know, end up being great athletes or not. Um, so to start out, I wanted to go back a bit and ask when you first found climbing. Um, so when did you first go climbing and how did that start? Sure. Um, so I was 16 when I went for my first rock climb. Uh, I'd say I probably struggled through high school a bit with self-esteem and feeling like I belonged and climbing was a sport for me that um, I came into towards the end of school um, and it just clicked. Uh, I think that it was probably the first time where I felt like I was myself and it was just this fantastic eclectic group of um, different kids from different social cliques and yeah, we all fit and I got stuck into it, really enjoyed it, and after probably within a year, um, went to my first competition. Was this gym climbing or was this uh, outdoor climbing? It was both. So we started out with a give it a try club at school. Everybody had to choose an alternative sport just to give a try. So it was once a week and we went down to the local gym um, and climbed indoors at the YMCA. We, there probably maybe 10, 12 of us. and then from there, some of us got really into it and started traveling a little bit on the weekends, not often, but when we could with our teacher or coach um, to sort of some of the places where you could climb within maybe an hour and a half, two hours of the town that we lived in. Cool. Is that something that's really common in your area as kind of like a development path for a child? I think often schools in New Zealand do provide opportunities to explore and do something new. I know that my children have been involved in the same sort of program where they get to select an alternative sport and just try something different. So at the moment, my son, uh, Max, who's 12, he's been enjoying doing some cycling, but um, they've had other sports like roller skating and sailing. And yeah, it's an opportunity to mix the social circles up a bit within schools as well. And I think that that's particularly helpful um, for young kids just to have that opportunity, or young and older, like, but to have that opportunity to 
break out a little bit of the box that sometimes we find ourselves in. And I guess that's what climbing was for me. Um, I felt like it was a place where I wasn't boxed, in, boxed into one particular social clique, which, you know, that does happen as you go through school. Um, and yeah, it was just a fabulous place where you can just come and let go and you all turn up and you just feel like a climber. You don't feel like the cool kid or the not cool kid or the yeah. geek. You are a climber. Um, and we were all equals. So, yeah, I like that. And even if you don't fit the box, then it gives you an opportunity to find like-minded people and find your group that connect with. And I think that's a rare opportunity, especially at that age. So that's very cool. So wait, how, how old were you at this time? I was si yeah, I was 16. 16. Cool. Very cool. And then um, from there, how did you escalate? Did you go and immediately go um, compete at multiple events? Or how, how far into it did you get at that point? I did not get very far. Okay. <laughs> um, so my first competition was also the competition where I had my accident. I guess walk me through that day. And how did, how did that take place? What happened? So we were competing as a team at the South Island Secondary School um, rock climbing champs and our group had we competed as a team of four um, our group had I think the highest score into the finals for the next day we'd done really well in the qualifiers really well in the semis I was doing a very low-key cool down sort of climb in a boulder room my feet would not have been more than maybe 1.5 meters off the ground like it was not high it's wow. a pretty standard bouldering setup the floor had wall-to-wall um, -wall matting, so it should have been safe. Um, and I was pretty tired. I was on a slight overhung pitch, maybe negative 10, it wasn't major. Um, and I had a spotter, but I did feel tired and I felt like if I had pulled that last move to go over the lip to the top and then come around the back of the boulder wall, which was an option, I could have fooled awkwardly. So I made the choice to consciously let go and to drop. And I said to my spotter, I'm, yeah, I'm going to come down. I'll jump off. And he's like, cool, I'm ready. And I jumped off and he took some of the weight, um, caught me. But my feet, I don't know, they hit like a little margin where the flooring had been maybe duct taped back together or had like a small patch in it. And I blew one ankle kind of out the side of my foot and broke the other one. Um, yeah, didn't go right through the skin, but you could see, yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Uh, did you know the moment that you landed that something was wrong? It, that's an interesting question. So I landed and it hurt. It was just as, it was a pain I hadn't experienced before. It was a sickening pain. But I think in my head, I was still like, oh, that was awkward maybe a sprain let's get some ice and I <laughs> or a new leg um, and I went to sit up and I remember my spotter he he put his arm out as I went to sit up um, you know you kind of instinctively go to grab the part of you that's hurting so I went to yeah. sit and to grab the ankle um, and he threw his arm out and smacked me across the chest and he was he just looked me in the face he's like lie down do not look um, and at that point, just the intensity in his voice and and the way he was pushing me back and telling me not to look and then this airy silence of the room, I was just like, oh, this might not be great. Um, wow. Yeah, and then one of my teammates jumped off the bouldering wall beside me and when he hit the floor and it sort of reverberated through to where I was and I felt that vibrations into the ankle, it just, it was all on from there. Um, wow. The pain hit, it was overwhelming. We waited 40 minutes for an ambulance. Um, the ambulance came and they painstakingly untied the laces on my climbing shoes. Uh. And I could hear my ankle crunching and grating like it was just munted. There were bone uh. fragments sticking in all directions. Um, and you could kind of feel and hear all of that. And I just, I think I screamed for about half an hour. It was pretty hellish. And then the hospital after that, did you go immediately into emergency surgery, I'm assuming then? No, so they um, they wanted to relocate the ankle because it was dislocated as well, um, relocated and then leave it for a, a week because really? wow. yeah, it was so badly damaged that 
they felt if they went straight into surgery isn't really a nice way of saying it I think the skin might have just blown up and not stitched back together okay. <laughs> kind of not pretty um, so they put it in a back cast split the cast to allow all the swelling and then I lay on my back in hospital for a week before they could even touch it to fix it wow. um, and then from that point um, I went into reconstructive surgery and they took part of my hip and they grafted it back into the ankle and they put metalware in there and then there was another week in hospital so slowly being able to get active on crutches and and by that point also the right foot was in plaster because I had broken that one as well oh jeez bit of an overachiever <laughs> right <laughs> sure um, Do you know, the, the funny thing is or maybe it's not funny but I kind of laugh about it um as we were sitting in class before we left to go to this competition because we left direct from school one of the guys in my graphics class had said to me, oh, you know, break a leg, have fun. Oh, and no. and then, then he was like, oh, do you know what? Have a blast. Break both feet. Oh, um, no. Oh. And then I broke both feet. So. <laughs> I'm glad that sayings like that have kind of disappeared over time. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't want to call the podcast um, when life uh, no. tries to cut you off at the knees. I mean, people don't go <laughs> I'm all I for a bad, a bad leg puns, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think it does a good job of showing your humor, that's for sure. Yeah, um, and look, humor is such an um, important way of coping. And I think, you know, when you talk about overcoming obstacles, we all have these different strategies and we all walk through life with different challenges. But for me personally, I find humor, humor is definitely a way of coping. I don't always get it right. Sometimes I make people feel quite uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'm working on that. <laughs> is it your humor or is it, do you use other people's humor as well? Like, do you look for comedies and stuff like that? Or is that more just how you joke through life? Um, I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty straight up, blunt kind of person so definitely mine but I think also in the adaptive community we do feed off each other a little bit and I'm yeah. definitely um, influenced by other adaptive athletes who have dealt with things in a similar way and one thing we do all struggle with um, which can cause some anxieties is that constant question of you know you leave the house and you're just having coffee with some friends and someone will shoot the what happened to you question. So humor in that instance, we all kind of throw it out there. And if you've run out of really terrible stories and answers, we might borrow someone else's. <laughs> so, oh man, so does that mean you make up an answer in that scenario oh, yeah. or kind of joke all around the time. with them? Oh yep. man. <laughs> all the time. Um, I've come up with some good ones, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like maybe I should stay clear of that today. No, I think I think we can let the listeners use their imagination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or send you some new ones. They could, they could do that too. Yeah, um, yep. Okay, so um, going back to you had just had surgery um, and then you are healing and the rehab from that. What was the recovery process like after um, you had that surgery? Yeah, so I don't think at that point, you know, you're 16, you're going back to school in a wheelchair, feeling like a total twit with two feet in plaster. I don't think I had any idea, really, how much of an impact it would have on my life. Um, so the rehab was kind of more just, you know, can I get back to some of the things that I was doing? Um, can I get back to being functional? But very quickly, I started to work out it was never going to be quite the same. Um, I had previously played football, and I never got back to that. I never ran again. Um, I constantly felt like I was behind everybody else, and there was just this continual disconnect between me and um, groups that I was spending time with. Um, and then almost a bit of a, oh, yeah, that's just, that's just right, she'll catch up kind of, um, vibe maybe and and I guess feeling like I constantly had to say no I can't come with you and do that like I'm, I'm not going to be able to get down the beach kind of thing um, so I think the rehab kind of I mean it sort of just happened but I never really completely recovered and then over the next um, over the next year I had one more op to remove some of that metal and then I sort of somewhat functioned with you know, basic mobility, but not being very engaged in activities and not really fighting for it either. 
definitely not fighting for it over the next sort of five or so years and then I started having more surgery again um, yeah it just it went on for 18 years wow and so how did that so you touched on it a little bit but how did that change uh, I guess your life path or how did that change your life I think that I well a couple of things um, first off we didn't have it sound, makes me sound incredibly old, but we didn't have all. social media or, you know, we didn't have the internet bringing all this stuff into our life and all these other people's dreams and, and the way other people overcome. So I was not at all around adaptive athletes and I was not around other people with disabilities. And I guess I also didn't associate with the word disability, but I, I did have a very I can't mentality. It was just this attitude that maybe just partly came from things that other people say to you, partly comes from the way you do or don't respond or fight back to that. And it sort of becomes this label. I talk about labels. It became this label, I guess, that I wore a bit. It's like your favorite outfit. You get up in the morning, you pick it up, you put it on, and then you go through your day with this label. And so for me, that label was sort of this I can't mentality. And so, like I said, I felt quite disconnected from being outside and um, being engaged in outdoors activities. But a lot of that came internally and, and was because I didn't fight for it. So I went through that for quite a period of time. Um, and then came, just, I guess, to a point in my life and my kids were a part of that where I felt like that label didn't fit anymore. Um, and I really wanted to push back and things like social media were having an influence on me and I could see what other people were doing and I didn't want to get up and sort of shroud my way through a day with a poor attitude. I wanted to see what I could achieve if I just tried. I didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't know if I could climb without using the left leg and I had no idea how far it would take me, but I wanted to show up and so that label becomes a poor fit and and I had to consciously choose myself to just kind of shake that off each day and to get up with the, all right, well, I might not be able to, but I'm damn well going to get off my butt and try. Um, and that that's something you have to do with the growth mindset and, and really fight for it. Um, yeah. I imagine that was pretty difficult when that switch occurred. You kind of mentioned that your kids had something to do with it, but what really... I guess, like, shook you to get rid of that label? Was there one, like, key thing, or was it more of a longer process? Um, I, yeah, it was probably a couple of key things. Um, my kids, definitely, they had an influence, and my youngest, his name's Quillen, he's nine now, turning ten very soon. He's a very straight-up <laughs> kind of kid, um, and says it like it is. So I had been through this period where I'd had an experimental surgery on my leg. They had put an exfit frame on there. Um, there had been multiple metal rods going through the leg, through the foot, out the other side. And then I'd had a pair of spanners and I had to slowly wind my own ankle apart. So my kids had watched me go through this. It was pretty disturbing. Um, made parenting quite challenging. But that was their normal and we sort of just got on with it. Um, but my reaction to that had been um, my world had just got smaller and smaller and my disability was becoming a louder part of my life and I was doing less and less. And um, one morning my nine-year-old just straight up said to me, Mum, you don't like food, do you? You just eat pills and drink coffee. Wow. And I felt like it was such a punch to the stomach. Like that was certainly a defining moment for me was to see how my kids saw me. And definitely there is a point and a time in life to use pain relief and medication but I didn't like that that was my only strategy and that I wasn't fighting to try and find other things that I could do that I loved or things that made me who I am and I'd come out of a really negative space in my life and I was just trying to I guess find myself and work out who am I if I take away the word mom and I take away the word disabled and I take away all these other labels that we wear, like what was left, what defined me, what did I love doing? And it was a pretty short list. <laughs> and then Quillen goes and says something very profound like that and it was a wake-up call. And, um, and that was when I started looking at going back to climbing and I had to drive a lot. We don't have a climbing wall in my town. Um, I drove two hours 
I rocked up to this tiny little climbing wall in another city and I was on crutches and I walked in and I, was, I didn't know anybody there and I just asked the person who was working, I was like, oh, could you point me in the direction of somebody I could trust? Like, I don't want to begin a layer who's going to drop me because it doesn't really work out in my favor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and they, they looked me up and down, didn't bat an eyelid and I became part of their family. Awesome. So yeah, that was, I guess that was the, one of the defining moments for me. Hmm. So it, it, climbing instantly called to you in that moment of the thing that you wanted to go try first. Um, I think so. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it to be honest. I think, hmm. um, there's an attraction to climbing because it's terrifying. Um, <laughs> and I, and I guess from a pain perspective, it became um, really good pain relief for me because I was terrified. So there's yeah. that little hit of adrenaline, which in the moment is so all consuming and makes you forget some of the challenges that you're going through. And, um, you know, it's tough solo parenting on its own, but I also have a daughter who has superpowers as a bit magical. Doctors like to call that autism. Um, so that's tough too. And I guess climbing for me very quickly became, um, a place where, where I could just step away from all of that and be so focused on don't fall off the wall and break your other foot that I, I guess I forgot everything else that was going on in my life. So it became stress relief and then stress relief becomes positive mindset and then positive mindset becomes um, bigger goals and dreams. And it, it sort of snowballs from, oh, I'm just going to give this a try to, oh, Maybe I could, you know, maybe I could make something out of this. Maybe this could be bigger. Um, and you get a little bit of hope. And I, I think hope really is the backbone of our strength. For me, that's where courage comes from, is believing in the things that you can't see and um, redefining your own expectations of yourself. And so climbing definitely became all of that. It's almost like the therapy side of sport that I think yeah. is so powerful. The sport can provide that for everyone, which is amazing. Um, yeah, hundred percent. That's a good way of summarizing. <laughs> yeah. So the when you okay when you started climbing again, what was what was that like? I mean, you had essentially taken quite a big period off, and you'd had a lot change. So what was it like trying to get back into it? And what were the things you had to face within that? I think one of my biggest struggles was fear, and fear on so many different levels. So. I guess the social anxiety of wanting to be able to turn up, be around people and connect a bit more to the world around me, but um, maybe just being a bit overwhelmed by by that as well. Um, and then also the fear of heights, that's something I still struggle with a lot. And so coming back to climbing, I was definitely, um, I didn't push myself really hard to start with. I just wanted to try and get a little bit more comfortable on the wall um, mm -hmm. and a little bit less afraid. And then as time went on, I I think I worked out, maybe I will always be afraid. Maybe I'm always going to have these little flashback moments, but actually isn't that a little bit why I do it and what makes me feel alive and one of the draw cards. So I kind of just set that aside and stopped worrying about, will I, won't I be afraid? And yeah, pushed into it. Um, travel was hard, so again, I think I mentioned we don't have a wall here, so to be able to commit to the sport once I started competing, it's a lot of driving, um, yeah. at the least it's an hour and a half to get to a wall, and then back, so I was dropping three kids to three different schools in the morning, driving an hour and a half in training, and then driving an hour and a half back just in time to pick all three kids back up wow. in reverse, and then get them through all their after school activities, and then by the end of the day, I would just be on the floor crying from all the pain um, and unable to really function a lot at all. And then I would get up and do it all over again the next day. So I guess that's what slowly began to lead me into the decision to amputate as well, is just seeing that um, from a pain perspective, whilst I was able to push into the sport and um, get it out there and make some goals. I was still incredibly held back by that pain and wanted to find a way to maybe move beyond it. Hmm. It, it was basically chronic pain, like throughout the, the entire day you were kind of dealing yeah. with that. Yeah. Okay. So I had, um, 
severe degenerative arthritis which onset because of the injury and that was slowly progressing into all the other little joints in my foot. I'd had nine surgeries on the ankle over an 18 year period. Wow. Um, and I would have little windows in the day where I didn't notice it, but 90% of the time, it's like a noise. I describe pain as a noise. Um, it's just this noise that is in the background. And then every now and again, the noise just gets quiet for a little bit. But most of the time it's just so loud you can't really hear yourself think and you're trying to have a conversation with someone and you have no idea what you're saying and you just become more and more disconnected from everything and I couldn't live like that um, yeah. and um, Quillen again one day he said to me after my first world championships um, I came home and he's like mum can't you just maybe take that leg off and get one of the ones that actually work and then you could stop saying no to us when we ask you to play and wow. again, that was quite a powerful moment where I just, um, yeah, I could see how my disability and how that disconnect because of the pain was not just affecting me, but affecting my kids and their memories yeah. and, and what they could see in me. And it gave me some of the strength to make a really hard decision. Was that the first time that you had thought about that option? From, no, from I'd made terrible okay. jokes about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you got it from somewhere. All right. Yeah. Um, I think... I mean, there were limited options for me. The amputation was not really one my surgeon was stoked about. Um, I think yeah. from a medical perspective, the safer option would have been to have fused one joint and then fused the next and then the next and then the next and then eventually cut the leg off. But I had given 20 years of my life to this and I wow. didn't want to give another 5, 10 or even one to just more surgery with an unknown outcome of of more pain and it, yeah I think um, I just got to this point where I wanted to take the chance that maybe I could put all of that behind me um, and then I'd been to Austria and competed in a world championships there and that was so empowering so that was the first time a New Zealand athlete had competed in paraclimbing on on the world scene and wow. then I'd gone on I completely surprised myself I came fourth and wow. I competed in the finals and we hadn't had a New Zealander compete in able or disabled finals before. So there were a couple of New Zealand records oh, awesome. there, which was pretty cool. And I will say, we do not climb anywhere near as hard as the um, able-bodied athletes. So full respect to them. I'm yeah. not comparing there. But it was just so empowering to see that I could be good at what I did. Um, and, and also to see um, how other people who were amputees were just kind of getting on with their life I guess and hmm. and how active and mobile they were so yeah that gave me a bit of confidence that if I did go down that path maybe it would be okay hmm. so you'd already seen a little bit of a maybe a glimpse of that yeah uh, lifestyle I guess in a way yeah um, okay. um and then I went when I got home I talked to a friend who's a physio and she said well I have a client at the moment who's a new amputee and he would be happy for you to come along and see some of his post-op care if you would hmm. like to and so I went with her to um, his home and he was having his dressings changed and he was doing his physio and so I just quietly sat in the background and observed um, and then I got in my car and drove away and threw up <laughs> Oh, man. And I remember just watching everybody walk past with two feet and I could just see all these feet and I don't know why, but it just, all these people with two feet, it just struck me and I cried and cried and then I went, yeah, okay, let's take the leg off. And I think maybe that was the point where <laughs> yeah, I realized um, I was ready to grieve over it and then I was ready to just get up and do it. Huh. And that was how quick the grieve to you know, past grief occurred or was there more in there? No, that's basically it. Wow. <laughs> impressive. I think really that impressive. from a, maybe from a grief perspective, the things that I've probably grieved more over is the loss of self because of the disability. Mm. And, and so once I made that decision to lose the leg, I really felt like I had made a decision to fight for gain and to do something that would, give me more hope and, and a better chance. So I really found the whole process quite therapeutic and healing from a, in a well-being sense, I guess. Um, and, 
and just becoming more of me. And I, I guess I would say I feel like I'm more whole now than I was with two legs because um, I'm doing more and I'm doing the things that make me me and I'm not being held back by a word like cripple or labels that other people give you and negativity that other people say and I'm not picking that label back up and wearing it myself like I was talking about earlier. I'm choosing my own path and my own goals and making them happen. So 100% I feel like I'm more whole without the leg. My kids will still joke, you're 80% human. Just for laughs. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. So you, um, I guess we'll, we'll dive into the sport side of things, but yeah. it kind of sounds like you, sport really wasn't part of the deciding factors then. It sounded no. like it was more everything else. Yeah, 100% not part of the deciding factor. I did see somebody wrote an article about me Every now and again, I Google myself just to see, <laughs> see what's out there, which is a bit weird, but, you know. And hey, someone had written an article about how I had cut my leg off to progress my sport. And I was like, oh, you have no idea. Like, <laughs> that is not a good reason to lose a leg because this is no. hard stuff. Like, it, it's not a walk in the park. Um, I basically parented from my bed for weeks after, afterwards. Um and yeah, all the all the ups and downs. You don't do it for kicks. No, I no. I I did it because I wanted to wanted to be more a part of my kids' life and I wanted them to have memories that they didn't have, like um, little things. So we sat down before the surgery the day before and we wrote all our little goals out on little wish cards and we put them in a jar and we bring that out now and again and we look to see are we ticking these goals off are we making progress as a family and I said to them at the time you need to make small goals and big goals because just and it's the same with sport you need to have small goals and long-term goals um, because you need to feel like you're getting that success and that you're winning all the way along you can't just have this massive big one day mum's going to run with us and do a triathlon and hike a mountain once she's got a new leg goal because that's going to take a long time. So what are the small goals along the way? And one that one of my sons had was um, to walk on the beach and hold my hand. And it was, oh. it made me really teary just hearing him say it and watching him write it down because I realized he did not have that memory or that experience, just such a simple thing. And he just had no concept of that because we'd never done it. I'd always had crutches. Um, and so, yeah, making wins in those goals, that was the primary reason. Wow, that's amazing. So have you, have you gone and walked the beach with him? I did, yeah, for his birthday um, last year. He said to me, oh, mum, I'm going to get toys at dad's house. All I want from you is to walk on the beach and hold you. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we went and there was this. His, we did it on his birthday and there was this massive thunder rainstorm and hail and it was terrible weather and the whole car was shaking back and forth and we're sitting in the car with one candle and a cupcake and no matches and it was all a little uh. bit sad to be honest and so he looked at me and he's like shall we just do it anyway despite the weather I was like yeah I think we should so we hopped yeah, out that's awesome we got drenched and and it was amazing <laughs> worth it 100% yeah. that's, yes. that's amazing when you made the choice, um, were you still questioning that decision when you, you know, went in for surgery? Like even on the day, were you questioning or were you sure? Were you sure that that was the action you wanted to take? I don't think I was questioning the decision. Um, I think it was very surreal. I remember lying on the table thinking, crap, I, I hope I don't question this decision as I'm falling asleep. Like that would be bad. <laughs> Um, I remember my surgeon saying to me down on the ward before we went up to theatre, look, if you change your mind, even on the theatre table right before you go to sleep, if you change your mind, you can say no. And we will all just pack up and it will not be a big deal and that's okay. And I felt quite emotional at that point because he was giving me an out. And, um, And I don't know why, but something about that just made it all feel very real that I was the person making this choice and that it was not a common choice and that it was a big decision and and it was going to take guts to actually go through with it so there was a small part of me that at that point could have maybe chickened out (laughs) 
but I just kept focused on those goals, the little ones and the big goals. And, um, and we rocked up to theatre and I actually don't even remember the falling asleep part. And I've had maybe 16, 17 surgeries, I've lost count. And it's the only one I don't remember falling asleep on. Wow. So I think I was just restful and I was ready. So when you woke up, what was that sensation or realization? I imagine it was a, a bit of haze, but you know, what was that realization that it was done and you? Um, well, it was quite painful. So there might yeah. have been a bit of distressed yelling and falls. <laughs> okay. And then there was some morphine and then it is quite hazy after that. Okay. <laughs> but, but I do remember um, feeling like there was still pain in the ankle. And for this brief little moment, I was like, oh my goodness, what if I am still in pain for the rest of my life? And I just chopped off a leg and fixed nothing. And so I just talked myself down from that. I remember consciously, I know it sounds weird, but consciously saying, nope, ankle, you don't get to hurt anymore. You don't even exist. You're not there, sod off. And I had this little conversation with myself in my head. Um, and then from that point on, the pain in the, so phantom pain, that wasn't so much an issue. Um, I definitely have had um, a lot of nerve pain and I'm waiting for an MRI to have a look at that and that's possible there's something going on there but that's in the residual limb, so in the actual part of the leg that I have left and hopefully that's fixable. But yeah, as okay. far as phantom pain and those sensations goes, I don't really feel the ankle that often and I think part of that just shows how ready I was to let go of it like yeah it had been such a hold back for so many years uh, and I was so ready to just be done with it and I get asked all the time oh my gosh that must have been horrific like cutting a leg off how did you deal with the grief and someone asked me that the other night in front of a friend and my friend was just like oh no no we were so ready to see her let go of that um, and she was with me on the day and she was there when I woke up. And I think the people that are close to me and that are around me can see that I was ready. And it really was more a celebration than it was a, a disaster, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. So when you, this, you know, massive change, what, uh, what was the changes, I guess, within your life then from that moment on? Well, I mean, I'm lighter for climbing. That's true. That's true. Counts <laughs> today. I should get 50% off shoes, but for some reason that's not working out for me. Oh, uh, yeah, I doubt that it works that way, sadly. <laughs> I've tried a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> People just look at me funny. I can't understand why. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> I think some of the, some of the anxieties and the, and the struggles that you have are the same. So some of the social anxieties I genuinely thought would change, and I thought that I would get asked less what happened to your leg once it was hmm. obvious that there was no leg there and that's something that has not changed and I deal with that every day every time I leave the house I'm mentally reminding myself don't snap at someone if they ask the question just throw some humor back and move on quickly and and it can that can be quite difficult um so some things didn't change but the the amount that I can be active and the amount that I can be engaged with my family and the places that I'm going and, and I guess how connected I am to the world around me, it just gets bigger and bigger and more and more exciting. And I'm still dealing with pain every day and I still have um, moments in each day where I can't wear the leg and I kind of need to pop it off and put the stump up and have a rest. But that gets less and less and the good parts are getting more and more so it's just giving me more and more strength to keep fighting and keep pushing and um and to see what I can achieve and I do have these goals with my sport and a hundred percent I want to stand on a world podium and absolutely I want to be the first New Zealander to bring home a medal in the sport and I want to do that for myself and I want to do it for my kids and I want to do it for every other person out there whether they have a disability or whether they're just struggling with self-esteem so that they can get up in the mirror I get up in the morning and and look in the mirror and go mm, that person has goals and she is going to make them happen and then to own them and step into them so I think my dreams are bigger and my ambition is bigger and my faith in myself and belief in myself that I can make them happen is bigger. And they're all such empowering things to have a part of your life and personality and, and self-worth. And 
and it kind of just snowballs and it all gets very exciting and it's great. I love that. Such that's yeah, so much strength. I, I think that's amazing. When I guess great or just time bat to, crazy, but yeah. Uh, no, no, I, don't, I won't say that. <laughs> Transitioning a little bit more um, towards sport, then. Yeah. Um, so let's step back before you had your leg amputated. Um, what was, how was climbing without? Um, I'm assuming then, what was your functionality within that leg, and um, were you essentially just climbing with one one leg at that time? And how did you m- maneuver on the wall? Like, how are you different than? Um, I guess, an able-bodied climber. Yeah. So I could put the knee of my left leg on the wall, Hmm, um, but I couldn't put the foot on the wall. Um, And I was using at least one crutch, but often two, or a kind of weird contraption, which is like a prosthetic, but is far too hard to describe um, when I was walking. Anyway, so, yeah, I couldn't weight bear fully on that leg, even on the ground, let alone on the wall. Um, so I used the inside flag a lot. I tucked that leg right through. Um, I could wait there on the knee. Um, lots of arm work (laughs) and working on the diagonal with my good side. So using the right leg and then the left arm so that I'm not barn dooring all the time, which is when you kind of, it's hard to describe to your listeners when you, yeah, yeah. If your if your body is aligned all on one side, you're using the same arm and the same leg, then you kind of just fly off the wall. So I tried to avoid that. Yeah. Um, and hmm. I think one of the things that helped me with climbing at that point was um, really trying to work on my awareness of where my body was against the wall and stay, you know, as close as I could. So often turning that left hip into the wall and working sideways a bit more, so that. Hmm yeah, I'm lifting as least of myself as possible. Hmm. Interesting. And then, uh, I guess on the, the para side, when you first started doing, uh, para competitions, what was that like? And how is that, uh, different to normal competitions? Well, the, I always feel like a bit of a noob with this question, to be honest, because we competed as a team when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. it, it was 18 years ago and it wasn't, we didn't follow all the IFSC rules and, I didn't understand sport climbing from that perspective at the time. And then when I stepped into paraclimbing, it's a very new sport for New Zealand. We're developing it and there are very few of us. So again, I had a little bit of an understanding, but um, certainly when I got to the world champs in Austria, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is (laughs) next level. And very much felt like I did not belong. Um, Yeah, so I... I approach it all from a growth mindset and I've kind of just gotten used to the fact that it's going to take a while before some of the um, particulars of the sport sink in. And I think also for me, um, I'm in a bit of a strange place because I've gone from not climbing for 18 years to trying to climb with one leg, well, only using one leg. And now post-amputation, I have a climbing prosthetic and I'm trying to rewire my brain that I can climb with two legs, but if you see me with the prosthetic on, I'm often just dragging this clunky thing up the wall and I forget that it's there. And my belay partner will be at the bottom saying, uh, left, left, put your left leg on the wall. So I'm I'm trying to retrain these pathways and it's like learning to walk again, which I have yeah. done countless times. I have had to relearn to walk over and over and over again and I will just make progress and then more surgery and then start again. So it's very much like that. Um, and my technique is absolutely hack with two feet. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I'm trying to learn to read these roots again from a completely different mindset. And it's tough. It makes my brain hurt. Um, but I'm very hopeful that I can make progress in that. So it's like you did so much, you had so much time teaching yourself how to climb again. And then you had to restart that all over again. That's, oh man. <laughs> That's it. So I still actually climb better without the prosthetic than I do Interesting. with it. Yeah, and so, I'm trying to learn these limitations, like what, where will the prosthetic help? And where would it be better to not have it on? And is the weight of carrying this thing up the wall worth it? Or hmm. am I better to be two and a half kgs or the weight of a leg lighter, like, these are all questions that I'm asking myself in my training and I'm, and it's tough because I'm trying to train with the prosthetic on so I can get better, 
but at the same time do enough climbing without the prosthetic that I still feel like a badass that knows how to climb rather than a total dork. Otherwise, you just end up feeling discouraged and, and then I just don't want to do it at all. And, you know, I started this for fun and I started it for me to feel empowered and to have that mental well-being. So I don't want to put myself in a position where it's just 99% frustrating and I feel like I can't do it. So yeah. I guess finding that balance between one leg or two is quite tricky at the moment. Yeah, that would be hard. The, when was um, when was the surgery done? How long ago was that? Uh, so it's February 2019. Okay, okay. So it hasn't really been that long. No. Uh, so February 2019, I had the amputation. And then 11 weeks later, I climbed at New Zealand Nationals. Wow. No way. Wow. Maybe against the advice of my GP, which is yeah, my doctor. But, <laughs> but he, he will often say, I'm a permission giver, so okay. But is this okay. the best thing for you? Maybe not. Um, but yeah, so I climbed. I had been really unwell with maybe borderline pneumonia leading up to it. So I was quite sick at the event. And then at the event, I might maybe have hypothetically actually ripped the toenail off my big toe on my one foot five minutes before my finals climb because it got caught on a door and I learned a valuable lesson about how we should look after our feet and wear shoes in the climbing gym and not walk around barefoot. Um, So my coach sort of taped it all down and did some weird acupuncture stuff because my whole body was going to shock. And then I shoved the foot into my climbing shoe and climbed. Um, so that was fun. And then just under five months after the amputation, I was in France competing at the World Championships there and came wow. fourth there as well. So wow. hopefully next you- time it will, it will be at least third. <laughs> wow. And you, and you- um, for both nationals and worlds, then you were climbing without a prosthetic then? Yes, yeah, climbing okay. without. And I didn't even have, a, I, I wasn't even training on a prosthetic at that point. So I was back huh. at the gym, um, so that not the climbing gym, but workout gym, two weeks after the surgery. As soon as the wow. stitches came out, I was like, okay, do I have the all clear? Can I work out? And the physio was like, well, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> and so I was there in my wheelchair working on the TRX and just doing what I could. Um, And then I was rock climbing again um, indoors within, I think, seven weeks of the amputation. So I did all of that before I could walk, but it just, that felt pretty natural to me. And I think it kept me going. Yeah, I could, I could see that as like an end or not an end goal, but like the driver Mm. almost. Um, Did you, so you said you were using your knee to climb after the amputation. Were you able to use your knee or was it just... You were primarily using, you know, three limbs at that point. Yeah, I could use the knee, but it wasn't as accessible because I was wearing a um, fiberglass cast on the stump, and that was just to okay. protect it because right. you want to protect this. Yeah, <laughs> um, <Go> figure. Because <laughs> it's only been not very long. Um, yeah, so that made it a little bit more awkward, but I don't need to use that fiberglass cast now. And so if I'm climbing without a prosthetic, I've got a little more leniency there to kind of, um, I guess, knee bar off the wall a bit. And yeah. Okay. All right. Just curious. Um, yeah. That's a good question. Okay. So I guess, <laughs> uh, how did, how nationals and worlds, how did those go? How were those, um, yeah. How did the end result go? It's funny when people ask that because I often feel so disappointed with worlds. Huh. Um, Sound like an athlete. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> um, it's what we do. But that's why we push so hard to come back, you know. And yeah. and I have to give myself some grace. Five months is not a long time to be yes. back at a world elite level. And and in particular, you know, all the all the medication in my system and the pain relief and, um, and the fact that I'd had another general anesthetic. And I'd been through 10 of those in the last five years leading up to that point so my whole system was just exhausted and I really really pushed hard to get there because I felt like if I could just show up then I would be keeping that momentum going as an athlete and from the perspective of um, you know getting some exposure and that constant drive to try and fund these trips I felt like it was really important to stay present in the sport Um, I didn't expect to come forth again so I I guess I was happy with that but at the same time um, 
I should have been in a finals for that event and there were just some technicalities on how they ran the event that they didn't provide the finals. So I think I was a little bit, I was definitely disappointed by that. But um, mm. next time. Yes, next time. Um, and speaking of which, what are, moving forward, what are your goals? What are, um, what are those long-term goals that you wrote down as far as an athletic pursuit? Yeah, so I would love to be world number one in what I do. Yeah. And I feel like that's completely possible. Um, where that's difficult is trying to um, balance that with being a mum and also trying to carve out you know, a bit of a career speaking so that I could actually have an income and trying to find sponsors and trying to train when I don't have a wall in my city. So sometimes that goal feels completely out of reach. But, but I think it's possible and I'm going to keep working towards that. So as a, as a climber, that would be um, my goal from a competitive perspective. But I've also started going back to sport climbing lately and, and outdoor climbing and did my first cool. sport climb on the Real Rock a couple of weeks ago and that just oh, made awesome. me feel a little bit alive again. So I'd really love to find a project that I could work on outdoors and just cool. reconnect to that because I think it's really important as an athlete not to be only driven by the idea of a podium because that is temporary um and and while i really really want it and i a hundred percent want to make my country proud and that and make myself proud and my kids proud i want to also be able to walk away and still have something left of me not put everything all into the sport so that you walk away and look up and go oh i have no friends left because i just worked myself to the ground on this so i'm I'm trying to stay connected to other things as well and keep that balance. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that perspective. I don't necessarily hear that a lot from athletes. Um, they, we tend to be fairly selfish individuals. Um, and, and that's so yeah. easy to do. Like I, I definitely yeah. relate to that. And I got to the end of my um, first world championship. And I, I remember looking up when I got home and just thinking, Oh, I'm not training. It's like, I've got a big rest week. What should I do? And I felt like, Maybe I didn't have anyone left to ring or ask to do something spontaneously wow. because I had just put everything into the sport. So second yeah. time round, I wanted to stay more connected. And, you know, I think that when you do that and you've got a little bit more balance there, maybe you get more out of your rest periods. And maybe when your mind switches off, your body does get stronger, easier. Maybe there's something in the psyche of that where when you look after your whole self, um, you make more gains, maybe. Yeah, I like that perspective. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like being all encompassing within life, too. And that fulfills you far more than um, people know, I think. And it also, yeah. it's very, on the coaching side, it's very difficult to show people that like, oh, hey, you're no, you're, you're happy and you'll, your life is fulfilled right now. So that's why you're doing so well in competition. Yeah. Um, it's not as simple as, well, this is your metric. Look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're right different. about that for sure. So, so how about you touched a little bit about this within different friends and so on and we touched about it now, but like community, how has community support um, helped you during, uh, I guess, all of your different decisions and um, adventures, I guess. Um, hundred percent. I can say confidently that I would not be the climber that I am if it weren't for the word community and um, Juana, which is family. Um, I am incredibly blessed to live in a town that while we don't have a climbing wall, they are just so proud of of the people that come out of our city and the places that we go and the things that we do. And um, I've been really backed by my community and that they've provided everything that I've needed for a climbing wall at home. So like a little boulder wall, yeah, cool. which I'm using very cautiously seeing as there's only one leg left and this is what put me in the situation in the first place. Um, but great for strength training and um, yeah, the community provided, you know, all the timber and the nuts and the bolts and everything for that. And then a couple of, um, climbing company, hold companies around New Zealand and one in Australia provided the hold. So I've been really, really supported in that. Um, and I think just the way, you know, it sounds, it almost sounds a bit conceited, but self-belief is so important and feeling like what you're doing is valuable is important. And I, I, I will go to town and drop the lawnmower off and somebody will say, oh, I know you, you're 
you're a bit of a legend around here, aren't you? And on the one hand, I feel quite embarrassed. Um, but on the other hand, to have people proud of what you're doing and to know that they believe in you really helps me believe in myself in those moments where it is just so lonely and isolating and fatiguing and you're just like, why am I even doing this? Um, so I know that my community are there even if I can't connect with them every day. Um, and I know that they're all proud of me even if I travel 35 hours to Austria on my own to compete and don't have them with me. I still feel all of that. And New Zealand is a small country and they have been um, so supportive and so proud and that definitely boosts my belief in myself and I think that helps you succeed. So 100% I wouldn't be the athlete that I am without my community and my country and my climbing team as well. The group that I climb with, they have um, backed me all the way. So I'm really thankful. Cool. Impact. It yes. seems like it's, it's very, it's another thing that's really hard to measure. Um, yeah, your impact can go a long way and you may not know who all you're inspiring, which is um, kind of the cool part of the new age of like social media and yeah. stuff like that. And, and um, yeah, 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 your story can go a long way, um, which is hard to hold on to, but that's, I imagine yours goes really far, which is very cool. Um, okay, so then motherhood. So how has, um, so you have three children, correct? Sure, yep. I've got Charlotte, who is coming up 15, cool. um, Max is coming up 13, and then Quillen is coming up 10. Cool. Very cool. Man, hitting all the teenagers on that one. Oh, my um. word. <laughs> I am not ready for two teenagers. But they are so amazing. Like, they're the most resilient kids, and they say the most profound things, and they have such a sense of looking after our own, you know, our well-being as a family and, and setting goals and celebrating the wins and also being real about the things that are tough and hard and um, part of that might be because of Charlotte's superpowers, her magical side, that can be mm -hmm. pretty exhausting for the boys. Um, but I've tried to create this place for them at home where they can just be, like it's their it's their place where if they just need to say, I am overwhelmed, give me space, or Ugh, I don't even know how to articulate. We know how to sort of group around each other and the boys will, they'll read the mood really well. Um, both of them will come up to me at some points during the day and say, oh, would you like a cup of tea? And it's kind of our Aww. response to everything's just a bit mental right now. And I'll say to them, would you like a cup of tea? Or I don't know, it's our little, it's our little safe space. But yeah, they're pretty incredible kids. I'm really blessed. Oh, yeah, I like that. It's like a, it's a safe place for all of you. That's very yep. cool. Yep. Um, and, it's, and it sounds like they've just given you a lot of uh, almost like power through all this to push yourself and be a better you. And I think that that's, that's a very big gift. Very cool. Yeah, they keep giving, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, last question for you. Um, and I've asked other guests this, so this has kind of become my the, the question that I ask. But... Um, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, um, is there anything that you would tell her? Yeah, I wouldn't do anything different. Like mm. I would, if I, and when I think about the accident, if I went back in time, would I say, don't let go? No, I wouldn't. I would let go all over again. And I would go through it all, all the suffering and all the pain all over again. But I would maybe remind myself at that point that within all of that I will get to choose what it makes of me not anybody else um, and that's one thing that I feel like I didn't work out until I was a bit older is that we define ourselves we choose who we are nobody can put a label on you and nobody can say you're just a cripple or, or just an invalid um, I remember a, I remember someone saying to me when I was 16 I was an adult that um, if I was a horse they would shoot me themselves did wow. I say that right? Shoot, they would shoot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because of my wow. disability, and um, and because I didn't have the the faith to believe that I could suddenly miraculously be healed, um, and so I guess that label or that idea of cripple was something that I really struggled with, and so I would definitely say to the younger version of me that what someone else says or thinks does not matter. It doesn't define you. It's what you pick up as your own attitude about yourself and your sense of self-worth and 
who you're going to allow to speak into your life and what truths you're going to let yourself keep repeating to yourself. Um, 100% you choose who you become out of all of it. But I would do it again. I would still fall. That's powerful. I, I think that that's something we should all kind of keep in mind. We define ourselves. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Rachel. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I super appreciate um, you're a huge inspiration, so please keep being you. Um, it's amazing thank to watch. Um, but yes, thank you. Thank you again. No problem. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I encourage you all to go over and follow Rachel on Instagram. I've gotten a lot out of her posts and just how real they are. I think they inspire others to keep going in hard times, and I really appreciate that. You can find her at Rachel Maya NZ. You can find us at Training Edge Pod and myself at Isaiah.Newkirk. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you all next week. Till then, keep finding your edge.